Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. At the Festival of Place, we brought together developers, designers, cities, local authorities, investors, and planners to discuss what makes places that thrive. Over the next few weeks, we'll be posting some of the speeches and panel discussions. Hopefully, we'll see you at the festival next year, which takes place at Tobacco Dock in East London on the 7th of July. In this podcast, we'll hear from Anne Power as she addresses the audience at the Festival of Place. Anne Power has long been engaged with housing and other urban problems facing cities. She worked with Martin Luther King's End Slums campaign in Chicago in 1966, and upon her return to Britain, organized community-based projects in Islington, Hackney, and Tower Hamlets. Power became a professor of social policy at the London School of Economics in 1996 and is head of LSE Housing and Communities, a research group based within the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion. She works across Europe and the USA and is an honorary fellow of the Royal Institute for British Architects and an honorary member of the Chartered Institute of Housing. She was a founding director of the National Communities Resource Centre and is current chair. Power is the author of many books, reports, and articles on housing, cities, and low-income communities, including Cities for a Small Continent, published in 2016. Hi, everybody. Um, So uh, this session was slightly misleadingly headed crime and inequality, or something like that. I'm going to make very little reference to crime, um, but I am going to talk about whether placemaking increases inequality, and if so, is there anything that we can do about it? So, um, if we just start by uh, some of the ideas that came up this morning about um, placemaking, um, it looks very high tech, it looks very expensive. Um, it looks out of reach to the places and the people that I mostly spend my time with. Um, So in that sense, you could argue that the typical image of placemaking is extremely unequal. But actually, placemaking isn't about um, a science. It isn't about architecture. It isn't about um, anything but people and their human instinct to group together. So we're social animals, and we, throughout our entire history, and we're driven genetically to do this, we group together, and in grouping together, we form in-groups and out-groups. So whoever is in your in-group is pretty much your equal, not entirely, but pretty much so, and anyone who isn't in your group is definitely historically, either an enemy or somebody you traded with but didn't count as one of yours. And so we have always tended to separate by origin and by culture and by family connections. Um, And so it means that the group itself works, but it's very difficult for other people to get into it. And if you look at society today, um, you can see that pattern very, very deeply ingrained in the way people behave. Um, But Jareth Diamond, uh, 
a famous American scientist wrote an amazing book called Collapse. I don't know how many of you have read it, but it explains why societies can actually disintegrate. And two of the most important things, one, one of the most important things is climate change, so let's take that as a given. But two others are, if the gap between the top of society and the bottom grows too big, then communication becomes impossible. Um, and that applies to groups within society as well as between different societies. Um, and the other point he makes is that if hostile relations develop between neighbours, uh, then that also can lead to society, societal collapse. And, and that is a huge warning for today. If we think of all the publicity there's been around the way developments are built so that there are social housing blocks and rich blocks to fund the social housing blocks, but separate and with different facilities, that's just one example or if we think of the kind of um, ethnic co concentrations that have developed, or if we think of street homelessness. I mean, we can think of lots and lots of examples that we see around us today that would give us a warning sign that the gap between the top and the bottom has grown too wide. Um, so why is it so difficult, um, if people are instinctively social, to get this placemaking to work? Well. We urbanized and industrialized before any other country in the world. Um, and by 1900, we were over 80% urban, nearly 90% urban, in fact. That leads to a lot of turbulence. It leads to really huge communication problems. Um, it leads to very big new divisions. Working class, which was the vast majority. Uh, middle class, which was the new emerging wealthy. Um, and then a residual bottom, a very big and sad residual bottom, bottom written up in things like Mayhew's London, which was a big document used by Dickens to produce what Dickens wrote. Um, and within that, and all the developments we see are owned by landlords uh, of one kind and another, landlords are in a hugely powerful position because within our social gathering instincts, we have an instinct for shelter. There's no human society, no matter how benign the climate, that doesn't create shelter in order to help us feel safe and together within our groups. And so landlords in the 19th century, up till the First World War, controlled 90% of all housing, um, and they were in an extremely powerful position, more powerful than anyone else. I would argue that the same is emerging as true today. And because of that, the people at the bottom could only afford one night lodging most often, and which is how lodging houses emerged as a very common form of accommodation. And if you couldn't afford a one night lodging house, then it was the workhouse. So uh, in 1906, um, Charles Booth, the brother of the Salvation Army founder, documented men queuing up with their families to hand them over to the guardians, as they were called, the guardians of the workhouses, because they literally couldn't afford the next one night's accommodation. So, so although there is this strong instinct for placemaking as our social holding together space, um, there are lots of pressures against it. Another huge pressure against it has been colonialism, where we marched, literally marched around the world and took whatever we could and caused intense segregation on racial lines while we did it, which of course led to slavery and led to the legacy that there is today in the United States 
where there's roughly five times the level of crime, uh, violence, murder, um, extreme poverty, and incarceration rates to Europe, and Europe is very bad. So if you look at a pattern between the United States um, and Europe, including this country, the extremes would go from areas that are good and people feel safe in to areas that are poor, huge, huge line. And in Europe, you'd actually see a very similar line, but not nearly as extreme. So, so our pattern uh, very much it mirrors that, and we've got absolutely nothing to be complacent about. And all of that drove suburban growth, all of which damaged placemaking. Um, but in between, we had the two world wars, which again uh, caused massive interventions. And I would argue that all placemaking interventions have caused inequality, or at least have reinforced inequality. And that's basically because we have to pay for placemaking. It doesn't come for free. Placemaking is usually tied in around housing. So things like the Peabody Trust or the Guinness Trust, which were set up by philanthropists in order to help overcome those terrible housing conditions I was referring to, they actually were so cheap rents, very cheap rents compared with private market rents for equivalent accommodation, were vastly too expensive for the people who lived in the slums that they knocked down in order to build those Peabody estates that you can see in Covent Garden or Bethnal Green or Whitechapel or, or anywhere like that. Um, and so we then got governments intervening with the idea that they could actually break this mold. And true enough, after the First World War and after the Second World War, governments were indeed determined to break that mold. Council housing would be for everybody and it would recreate those beautiful English villages where everybody lived together where it was relatively high density, where everything was mixed and therefore relatively equal. On the back of which we dreamt up new towns and we built 28 new towns, again with the same idea of sharing, placemaking, uh, greater equality, greater integration. I mean, the story of new towns is very sad because the vast majority of new towns actually became effectively large-scale public housing um, and the government record shows that the very large majority of them weren't very successful. That doesn't mean to say that Milton Keynes wasn't successful, that Stevenage wasn't successful, that one or two others weren't successful, but overall the record of placemaking there where it was literally a built-in principle wasn't very good. And the same applies to slum clearance. So we ran a massive slum clearance program from 1930 to 1980 in an attempt to get rid of awful conditions, partly caused by the war and partly caused just by the legacy of the Victorian era, um, and that had a terrible impact. It displaced the very poorest people. Council housing became very targeted at the long-term settled residents of those slum clearance areas. So any new migrants that arrived in this country as a result of colonialism, as a long-term result of colonialism, stood no chance. <coughs> oh, sorry. Gosh, that was, that was terribly loud. <laughs> I'll try not to do that again. Um, uh, and, and so we invented a, a, an exclusion system, even from council housing. And that meant that people were pushed down the ladder. And meanwhile, we'd sort of banned private renting, so that was disappearing. So homelessness became an issue. We then passed a Homelessness Act to try and force um, homeless people into council housing, which indeed did work, but they got into the council housing that was very unpopular with everybody else because 
that's where there was space. So again, we created this um, space division. And meanwhile, all of those actions caused cities to decline. So London lost population steadily up till 1996. So by 1996, I think the population of inner London had halved from where it was um, before the Second World War. And it took till 1996 for it to turn that corner. But meanwhile, the government realized that this was a wrecking ball, literally a wrecking ball, to housing that actually was structurally sound if you took the trouble to invest in it. Um, and so we ended slum clearance, um, and we also ended council housing building. That was as a result of the International Monetary Fund coming in because we were bankrupt. So, so you see, all of these things have a story behind them. It's not the story that Stuart Lupton told in his talk this morning, by the way. Um, and then in the 1980s, because of all of those problems, there was a huge reaction against it. So it then became the complete other extreme. And I worked for 10 years uh, between 1980 and 1990 for the Thatcher government. Um, so I know at close quarters what it was about. I was actually, by the way, taken on by the Labour government, but then Thatcher got elected. Um, and, and it was all about reacting against Big Brother. So it was about privatizing. It was about closing. It was about cutting. Um, it was about wealth creating, it was about driving owner occupation, it was about reducing local authorities and, if possible, reducing council housing and Thatcher invented this brilliant idea of um, right to buy in order to achieve that. Um, but, interestingly, she was very obsessed about placemaking, while at the same time she was obsessed with privatisation. So she brought developers in to our cities, which were losing out on every front, as I've tried to show, uh, in order to rescue Docklands. So this place, this place-making place, and this conference in a place-making place about place-making, is the product of that move to set up urban development corporations, which were set up in every major city in order to rescue places. And what was interesting about that was it was part reaction to sheer scale of dereliction, it was partly a response to the loss of population in cities and cities no longer being viable. It was partly a product of not being able to find people to move into the new towns, of having built too much council housing, which I do know about too. So if anybody thinks we need another mass building of council housing, they need to look at where we were in 1980, where the government produced a report called Difficult to Let Council Housing, which is what I worked on. Um, and there were big worries about destroying what was there. So all the Docklands tried to take the industrial architectural heritage of those places, which were all within Dockland communities. In other words, very high poverty um, council housing areas, effectively. I mean, Tower Hamlets, where this is, was 65% council housing in 1980, when the uh, Dockland Development Corporation was set up, and to try and restore um, and compensate for the environmental damage that we are causing. And Margaret Thatcher came up with the most brilliant phrase. It's one of the, it might be the only brilliant phrase, actually, I know she said. I'm sure there were others, but she said this one. We are tenants on this earth with a full repairing lease. In other words, we don't have the right to own and hold on to and make money out of. We have a duty to treat it as a privilege to be allowed to live here and to actually take care of it while we're here so that when people come after us, it'll be as good as 
it was when we found it and when we left it. And I think that was very insightful. So if we think of all development and all placemaking and all community efforts as being about enhancing places for the future within a sustainable framework, we can think a little bit differently. But given the huge separations that were caused, I mean, Docklands were massively controversial. I mean, the Isle of Dogs in um, Tower Hamlets actually declared unilateral declaration of independence from the Docklands Development Corporation, even though it was based on the Isle of Dogs, uh, because they felt so alienated from this development push led by developers. And again, uh, bearing in mind what we heard this morning, it isn't true that developers are very good at communicating with very low-income communities and integrating into those areas where they can best trespass because the areas that are low value, occupied by low-income people, are the very areas that are offered up for development. And all over London, large areas of council housing have been taken down in order to make space for developers to do precisely that. Um, there is an interesting interlude under New Labour when there was a complete fixation on inequality and the divisions created on a place-based um, foundation. And Tony Blair famously said, nobody will be disadvantaged by where they live and there will be no inequality between areas. So they literally targeted, targeted, targeted. So I was part of the government's urban task force that was a very generic effort to restore cities to how they should be, which was all based on density. It was all based on uh, mixed tenure, the kind of things that have been talked about this morning, on integration. Um, uh, I also worked very closely with the Social Exclusion Unit, which precisely targeted those same topics, and then I was part of the Government Sustainable Development Commission for nine years. So, so there was a lot of government focus on how to tackle these problems. And they did have a measurable impact. Again, if any of you were at um, the social impact session, you can actually measure social impact. So in terms of crime, uh, in terms of health, in terms of housing quality, in terms of jobs, in terms of skills, in terms of school performance, all the indices went up over that 10 years of investment. So you can actually make a difference to places and to the people who live in them if you work hard enough on it. Um, but you have to keep it going and you have to work with the grain of existing areas. So looking at an area, deciding it's bad and supposing that getting rid of it is going to solve your problems, all it's going to do is disperse those problems and create the next round and the next generation. Um, and that's because every single form of intervention that we've made has caused problems. So if we take, for example, private renting, the government uh, rightly decided to free up private renting under Thatcher in 1989 because private renting had fallen to only 7% of the stock from 90% to 7%. So anybody who, whose partnership broke up, any young person who left home, anybody who needed an improvised and quick entry form of renting, which they certainly couldn't get through council housing, nowhere to go. So we got a shady private rented sector. So opening up the private rented sector was a definitely good idea. But it then jumped extremely quickly to 25% and it's now 35% in London. And on some council estates, Tower Hamlets happens to be a case in point, it's now up to 40% on council estates. 
because of right to buy tenants becoming leaseholders and then renting out their property on council estates. So you've got this completely ironic situation of councils like Tower Hamlets buying contracts with private landlords in order to be able to rent them to homeless families who can't get into social housing and paying probably three times the rent for a council flat through a private landlord um, on any of these council estates that are around this area um, than they would if they were still council housing. So there's a certain illogicality about the way we've done things. Not to speak of the fact that I think the subsidies to owner occupation are five times the level of the subsidies to any form of social or affordable housing. So there's a very unequal distribution of investment in order for placemaking, which I'm interpreting broadly, to actually break down polarization or break down um, inequality. So what happens if developers do try, and I genuinely believe that people like Stuart Lupton has invested a huge amount of energy and effort and skill and money into literally trying to make places better, and he certainly showed some amazing pictures of doing precisely that. If we take the council estates that I know that have disappeared, um, Elephant and Castle, um, the Haygate, the Aylesbury, Woodbury Down in Hackney, Graham Park in Enfield, um, these are all huge areas of council housing where very large numbers of council tenants were displaced and where developers are expected to put back the same amount of council housing, but social housing, as it's now called, so that housing associations can do it, as was there before. And in no case, but literally no case under those models that I've just described, is that actually possible? I've actually spoken to the developers, and they've said it just can't be afforded. What is even more tragic is that the carbon impact of doing those things is completely huge. So if we're gonna take the climate change agenda seriously, we certainly can't be knocking down existing places. We've somehow got to find ways of working within them and making places of them rather than removing them in order to create this kind of ideal type through a private funding type model. So what about now? Well, I mean, now we all know it's three million homes. At all costs, three million homes have to be built. Uh, there's a huge, huge drive to build them in the North and the Midlands. Uh, that's because it's a lot cheaper to build them in the North and the Midlands. Do the North and the Midlands need them? If you look at house prices in the Northeast, for example, they've stayed level or they've even fallen slightly. If you look at the amount of spare housing capacity in the Northwest, uh, in the Yorkshire, area or in the East Midlands or the West Midlands come to that, you'll find a lot of spare capacity. So why, given the carbon impact of what we're doing, do we do that? And why do we ignore, and again I refer back to the images we were shown this morning, why do we ignore that concrete and steel are the two most energy intensive materials that can be used and they are the making of modern buildings. What's interesting about this building, it's not concrete but it's certainly steel, but it's 150-year-old steel, and actually, thank goodness that they kept the steel in place. They've probably added a few bits. I don't know how much they've added, actually, but, but you get what I'm saying. The Economist did a very big study of this, and it showed that actually, if you take the embodied carbon of concrete and steel, then the impact of buildings and placemaking on climate change is 50%, 5-0, 50% half 
of all climate change impact. So development has to be seen within that context. And we also have to remember that numbers do not get homeless people off the streets. As Ronald Reagan, President of the United States, said when they had a huge surplus of housing and a huge homelessness problem, our problem is not homes, our problem is access and affordability. There is no point in producing homes that rely 40% on foreign investment and foreign sales if those homes aren't going to be available for the people who need homes. So how can we make places work? What can we do about this social instinct? Well, the first thing we need to do is, and somebody mentioned this this morning, we need to adopt an organic approach, by which I mean we need to take places that they are and work out how we can enhance them. Secondly, we need to take what I call a more blended approach. So forcing developers, which is what happens, to build to the very highest luxury standard, to sell for the very highest price, which is what's happening at the Elephant and Castle, for example, in order to fund replacement social housing, because each new social housing unit in that development costs £250,000, um, then you're not creating a mixed community, you're not creating a place, you're not creating integration. No matter how pretty it looks, it won't work, it can't work, because there's no blending between what that very high income and often absent group requires and wants and what the low income community needs. Um, so we have to think of public spaces and social spaces as something that a very clever Nobel Prize winning economist called common pool resources. So there are certain things that have to belong to everybody in urban areas because if they don't belong to everybody, they're not gonna work for everybody. So how can you make public space, parks, um, libraries and other amenities um, that are available um, for everybody? Well, we don't tax space in any way at all. So you can occupy as many bedrooms or as few bedrooms as you like in your house. You won't be taxed. But if you're a council tenant, then you will be taxed um, if you've got one bedroom to spare. So, you know, just that kind of driving inequality in the way we teach, uh, treat groups makes place-making very, very difficult. Um, we don't uh, change council tax. Council tax hasn't been changed since 1991. So, for example, when the Grenfell Tower fire happened, we checked on the value, the council tax value, of a property in Grenfell Tower compared with a very high-end home in South Kensington. And while there was a 300 times difference in house price, there was only a 30 times maximum difference in council tax charges, which is obviously ridiculous. Council tax is supposed to re represent the value of your property. In the street that I live in, uh, the owner-occupied Victorian um, semi-detached houses are taxed almost at the same level as the council maisonettes on the other side of the street that was destroyed by bombs. So until we do things like that, um, we're stuck. Um, we also could look at Switzerland, which taxes foreigners in a very, very different way and actually doesn't allow them to acquire property. Um, there are all sorts of things we could do. And the other thing that we could do, and we have to do, the private rented sector is now bigger than the social rented sector. It's over 4 million homes. And it is the biggest houser of homeless people. 
and it is the biggest cause of homelessness. It evicts more people onto the streets than any other form of housing. But there's no reason why the private rented sector shouldn't have longer and renewable tenancies. You can still get rid of a tenant that doesn't pay the rent or that's horrible to your property. But since most tenants aren't like that, why wouldn't you want to renew the tenancy? You can charge affordable rents. Nobody tells you that you have to charge the maximum market value for your property. You need to pay off your bank loan. You need to be able to repair the property and manage it. So why shouldn't you charge reasonable rents? Um, and you need to ensure basic conditions of safety, which are very, very poorly controlled. So there are lots of things that we could do um, to make places work better for the low-income people that live within them. But what about the actual overall environment of places? Well, mixed uses, a lot of people have talked about this morning, but you can't get mixed uses to work unless you tame traffic. So taming traffic is absolutely vital. So good on the local authorities that um, penalise cars for parking where they need the street to be clear so that people can actually get to the shops, like the, where I, again, where I live. Um, we should treat different tenures more equally. At the moment, owner occupation is massively privileged and private renting is let off the hook on absolutely everything. Social housing is sort of squeezed somewhere in the middle. We need to learn how to blend old properties with new by using infill, which I'll come on to in a minute. And we need to not take away open spaces and green spaces, in addition to which we need to make public transport work. I mean, London has done a fantastic job on that. I'm sure it's not perfect, but it has really pushed um, transport access to a point where, uh, again, as Stuart Lupton said, car use has dropped. He said by 50%. I'm amazed that it's that much, but it's certainly dropped a long way. So I do have a model of what could work, and it is the model of the place where I live, and I don't offer it because I think it's the best place. I th I'm offering it because I know it very well. But Islington has done some very interesting things. When I moved into it, and I moved into a slum clearance area, it was one giant slum clearance area. It was all condemned, from King's Cross all the way up Highbury Corner and up to Holloway and up to Archway. It was in one giant slum clearance area. Um, and the council was very bad at knocking things down. It was considered a really rearguard council. It didn't like knocking houses down. And it was very old school. It was also very racist. So there were a lot wrong with it. But the one thing that Islington benefited from was not knocking down its slums. Because when the government dropped slum clearance, it was able then to renovate an awful lot of places. It also meant that it had to protect its council housing because it hadn't built as much as everywhere else. It had a lot to protect, so it hasn't knocked down council estates. Um, on the contrary, it's renovated old estates, and anyone who tries to develop in uh, Islington has to pay 50, uh, yes, 50,000 pounds per unit that's produced as a community levy in order to allow more social housing to be built. One of the most genius things it did, Islington has the least open space of any London borough, and London boroughs don't have much open space, so it's very, very deprived of open space. Uh, a genius in um, the environment department, leisure department, came up with a scheme called Tree for a Tree. If you were willing to pay £10 towards a tree, this was in the 1970s, when Islington was not only short of parks, it was short of trees, um, then you would get a tree. The council would come and plant a tree, and you had to look after it. Islington now has more trees than any other London borough apart from Richmond. Richmond is the only borough 
that's got more trees than Islington, and it's green everywhere. And it does make the fact that it's a bit short of parks feel a lot better. But it has done two other things that have enhanced its open space. One, it's, it's made all its small open spaces multi-use, so it's instituted you know, sports areas, it's introduced play areas, it's introduced picnic areas, um, and then just free areas, and it holds festivals on them, not those closed off festivals, but just you know, general open uh, type events. So, so it's, it's made incredible use of its open spaces. But the other thing it did under the Fairness Commission, and it was the first local authority to set up a Fairness Commission when austerity came in, it decided to create a fund so that every single council estate in Islington could find an open space within the estate and turn it into uh, public use. That is how Barcelona won the Olympic bid. That is exactly what the city of Barcelona did um, in the 1990s. And so I think it's very interesting that Islington chose to do it. But the most important thing it did was to use infill because it didn't have big sites and because it didn't want to demolish. It looked for infill. Now, there's a study called the London Capacity Study that showed that if all the half-acre sites in London were used, that were literally going spare, like old garages or the ends of terraces or uh, just little bits of scrapland or closed-down workshops or whatever, uh, then London could create enough housing for all its projected household demand. And what's brilliant about the infill approach is, one, it's organic, Two, it fits in with what's there already. Three, it helps upgrade what's there already. And four, therefore, it leads to more integration. And fifthly, it enhances the capacity of small builders. So there's a huge amount to do. I did have uh, something to say about other areas of the country where it's a very different story because values are so much lower and developers can't make so much money out of it. But I'll just end by saying that we need moderate to high density for places to work, and we're a very low density built country. We need good public transport, and apart from London, other cities have to run uh, just a chaotic com competition-based transport system, which literally means you get a very poor bus service, for example. We need public-friendly, people-friendly open spaces, and we need to be very green. Most importantly, if we want to make places work, we need this blended integration, as I called it, trying to link the extreme wealthy and all their money and demand on space and facilities with the poorest people. It's screamingly obvious that that is not going to provide a solution. So, so we have to rethink the whole development agenda, I think, along our social instincts, our placemaking instincts, and are what works within the frame that we've already got. Um, and that's a big challenge. Thank you very much. We're going to have a Q&A now. Um, so I think we have a roving microphone. I'm going to take the questions in threes. Um, so if you could put up your hand, I'm going to wait for your one, two. And do we have a third? Three. Hi, good afternoon. Victoria Lee from Design Council. Um, my question um, obviously relates to placemaking, but the question is, um, to what extent do you think that placemaking needs to be controlled or needs to be developed, managed? Um, I guess my question uh, comes from the concept of placemaking happening naturally, um, but obviously with um, new developments and planning and um, 
urbanization, you know, placemaking is kind of curated and, and uh, conceptualized. So I was just wondering to what extent is it natural and, and could take place and could be fruitful as opposed to it being curated in itself? Great, and then the next question. Uh, there were two others. You put your hands back up. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, hello, Alexandra Sonsina. I'm working with ING, the bank, right now. Um, I feel from your talk, which was amazing, that you have perhaps a fatigue of uh, recurring um, policies across uh, governance, uh, governments across the last 30, 40 years, and I wondered uh, what sort of headlines you might give this upcoming government uh, in <laughs> order not to repeat the mistakes of the past. And then there was one more over here. Hi, yeah, also amazing talk. Uh, Jim McDonald from Architecture and Design Scotland. Um, you talked a little bit about subsidies and, and the structural drivers of some of the inequalities. Very simple question. Your thoughts on what we could do to shift that balance? Okay. What difficult questions. <laughs> okay, so, um, I mean, I'll do my best, and can people come back if I get it wrong? Of course. Okay. Um, so the first person, did you say you were from Napoli? I don't know who was speaking. Did oh, you no. say you were from the Napoli? The Design Council. No, how do you say the Design Council? But did you mention Napoli, or did I totally dream that? <laughs> I obviously totally dreamt it. Okay, <laughs> forget Napoli, everybody. Um, because that is not a controlled, managed, and curated place at all. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, places do need to be managed. That is absolutely key. Dave Cowan's made a very big point about that this morning. And one of the big problems, I'm not saying this is anything to do with any of these sort of amazing buildings or the kind of buildings that Stuart Lupton was showing, but the typical developer housing is... A few years in and the developer's gone. The developer does not have a long-term interest in the place, which is actually very different from social landlords. And I think having, and, and our law in this country, because traditionally we've built houses rather than blocks of flats, I mean, the old sort of mansion flat type structures, the, um, what are they called? Uh, mansion houses? That kind of thing, like the Bedford Estate, for example, or the Cloudsley Estate, or the the one around Eden Square, those old estates were built in with a long-term um, developer interest. But most of what we've built is quickly thrown up by builders and then they turn their back on it. And if it's owner-occupied and it's street properties, that does have its own sort of self-contained dynamic. But if it's flats and if it's collective and if it's landlord-owned, then the landlord has to have long-term commitment. So I was very interested, for example, in that recent fire in Barking, where the property had been built by Bellway. It was then sold on to a property company. It was then leased out on management to a management company, which then subleased the actual direct management of the block to yet another company. And what was absolutely tragic about that was that Bellway, I don't know if Bellway are here, um, they had really taken all the steps that they could to try and ensure that all the safety measures were in place and, and you know, they were checking on everything and they were investing as they should. And I mean, it really seemed as though they were doing the right thing, but you've got this long chain. When you get the Grenfell Tower disaster, you find a very similar situation where you've got the landlord Kensington Chelsea, then you've got this so-called TMO, which wasn't a TMO at all. It was 
and Almo, and then you get the contractor, and then you get 92, 92, no less, 92 subcontractors, which is why the police have got 33,000 uh, pieces of different evidence to track in order to find out who's curating what. So all I'd say on your thing is that the Judith Hackett review of building regulations, which basically says you have to have a single point of control and it has to be managed and the residents have to be involved in that management and you have to have a clear documentation of everything that's done to change it so that you know exactly the way the place works and who's running it and who to go to. Frankly, that was for buildings. You should apply that to placemaking. And it's interesting that in the 2000s, under New Labour, when neighbourhood renewal was going on, and we did a study... Whoops, I keep forgetting. Sorry about that. Um, we did a study of neighbourhood management. Um, we came across a kind of management that was neighbourhood renewal, except it wasn't managing neighbourhoods at all. It was managing town centres. It was called town centre management. And in, I don't know to what extent it happened in London, but it certainly happened in Glasgow, and it happened in lots of cities. It happened in Milton Keynes, um, lots of places, Liverpool, Manchester, where because each individual investor in the town centre couldn't control the collective, and because it was privately owned, and therefore the council only had a limited jurisdiction, um, they formed associations of town centre investors and properties in order to be able to, for example, pay for a common warden to supervise the collective areas, which was, which was hugely successful. It had to bring in the police, it had to bring in the local authority, but it also had to bring in all the owners. So there are ways of placemaking and guarding places, and I personally do believe that you have to do that. So if that was your question, yes, definitely. Um, on the recurring policy problems and headlines, I mean, there are definitely things I would like to tell Boris Johnson what to do. Um, and there are definitely things that I don't trust him to do. But we need very clever people to go in there and sort it out. We know that Boris Johnson is lazy, and we know that he doesn't bother to run meetings properly, and that he lets other people do all the legwork. So if you know any way of getting clever people in there, to actually manage uh, what happens, uh, what should those people do? They should focus on equalizing. I mean, we do have a huge gap in job security, in rates of pay, in conditions of pay, in housing conditions. We have a huge homelessness problem. We have a very big transport problem. We have a massive environmental problem. I mean, basically, if we were going to be serious, as uh, Greta Thunberg and the children's protesters would say, we wouldn't put another lump of concrete into the ground. We definitely wouldn't use another steel girder. Well, that's a very long way from where this conference is. But, you know, these are the kind of urgent priorities that somehow we need to think about. And how you do that while equalizing, you have to target the bottom I just cannot see. The only thing I know that works to help low-income areas do better is targeting low-income areas, because low-income areas will always be shortchanged otherwise, unless you do that. But I don't think that's earth-shattering. I think it's a very, very difficult thing. I do think that the community-led housing type idea, although it will only make small differences here and there, I do think it offers a very big opportunity, because it does pick up on 
how can you make this group be inclusive and work? And I do think, from my experience of community-led housing, it's very worried about being exclusive because it's a kind of nice effort. How do you stop nice efforts from being the in-group of nice people? I think, that's, I think that's really difficult. We all have to look at our social contacts. And I think if people were honest and looked at their social contacts, they'd have to admit that they weren't very sharing and they weren't very integrating and they weren't very open um, because we're only capable of so much. We are in-group type people. We're all in-group type people. How do we make that work within a modern urban society where we've got these fast flows? Well, I'm afraid I don't have a magic answer. I, I'm sorry, question number two, I don't have a magic answer. But I do think I could stop Boris from making some mistakes, so I hope he asks me. Okay. Subsidies. Uh, Scotland and subsidies. Where's Mr. Scotland? Yeah. I mean, Scotland has done some things different, like its homelessness uh, controls um, and its eviction controls and its um, form of subsidies and uh, it believing in intermediate renting, in other words, not maximum profit and not the cheapest, but doing what's in between. I mean, frankly, I would say Scotland was ahead of us. They do get more money than us, though. Um, <laughs> so they can afford more subsidies. Um, and but I'm if, sure if it's could, not a miracle. I think his question was if, if you could choose, so saying even out of that Scottish council, but if you could put money into something to shift the balance, where would you put the money? Okay. Well, I, I suppose I was trying to say that they're doing some of my favorite things already. So a bit more control of the private rental sector, but not too much. I would definitely do that. Protecting um, homelessness and the right to housing, I would definitely do that. Giving tenants a bigger voice, I would definitely do that. Subsidising intermediate renting so that that really works, by which I mean, you know, not the lowest cost, but also not market. Um, I think Scotland... Well, what would I do down here? Let's forget Scotland for the moment, and what would I do down here? I'd do all of those things down here, but I'd look a bit more carefully at whether they're really going to work because of this law of unintended consequences. So if you do too much to limit the private rented sector's capacity, you'll start losing private rented units, and then that'll be worse for homelessness, for example. So you have to be very, very careful the way you do it. But you also have to pay more taxes. Um, so the main thing I would do is actually, that is definitely the main thing I'd do. I'd charge probably everybody in this room more, including myself. Because if we don't pay more, we can't equalize. And if we don't pay more, then we can't create collective spaces, because for all that Stuart Lupton was arguing, that developers are carrying this massive burden of collecting, of, of creating collective spaces, as he explained, they are restricted in their access, because they have to be. They're all on the 47th floor of tower blocks. So how can they possibly make them available to the wider public? You know, that's not public space. It's shared space within a block, which is brilliant. But if we want collective provision, we have to pay for it. And we learned that after the First World War because collective provision what has saved us. We learned it after the Second World War and the result was the welfare state. I think we have to learn it again. I wouldn't go for massive taxes, but I would go for taxes. So I'd go for council tax, I'd go for space tax, and I'd also go for sharing. You know, we could do a lot more to promote sharing. Um, and actually, we're forced to share. I mean, this is all sharing. This is sharing. Docklands is sharing. We're all sharing spaces. But we could actually glorify that and say that it really makes places work. 
Barcelona has got four times the density of people of London, and everybody loves Barcelona. They don't love Airbnb so much, though, because it's taken <laughs> Which is supposed curation. to be sharing. It's defined well, sharing. Well, that it? was the original idea, but it got perverted. Mm -hmm. So that was a shame. It, it is a shame that it got perverted. So now local people who work in all these local wonderful enterprises can't get anywhere to live because it's all Airbnb, apparently. They've had big strikes and riots in Barcelona about that. So I want to thank you a lot for, for sharing that with us and for um, your questions. Thank you very much for that. So can we all thank Empower? This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer. Produced by Simon Mercer. With music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray and you can reach me on Twitter at at TC Murray.